exactly. So Ephesians chapter 6. So Anne-Marie mentioned that this service or this series of messages is based on the idea that comes from that song about surrounded. But the truth is that it is there. But I think that the truth of that song finds its inspiration in a story in the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to tell you the story. But it's the basis for this idea of surrounded. In the Old Testament, there's this story of a king named Aram who is frustrated beyond belief. He continues to try to attack the Israelites, and every time he attacks the Israelites, they seem to know what he's going to do. You see, the problem is that there's a prophet in Israel named Elisha, who continually gets messages from God that tells him what the king of Aram is going to do. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, King Aram decides that the only way they're ever going to be victorious against Israel is not to defeat their army, not to defeat their king, but they have to kill the prophet. The problem is they can't find him. Like he keeps getting away. And so he begins to plot and scheme and Aram thinks, listen, this guy knows too much. In fact, one of his advisors tells him that this man seems to tell the king of Israel things that have only been said in your bedroom. Like he knows your most intimate secrets and he's telling the king everything. And so they decide to get an army. They finally get a good idea of where he is and they surround the camp where Elisha is staying. They surround it at night, and the next morning, the servant wakes up of Elisha and goes outside. And you can imagine his surprise when he walks outside, and there are hundreds, thousands perhaps, of chariots and warriors and horses, people ready to do battle around him. And he goes inside, and he looks at Elisha. Anybody know what Elisha's doing? He's asleep, completely asleep. I think there's some foreshadowing of Jesus in the boat. Do you remember in the the storm when the disciples are freaking out and they go downstairs to do something to Jesus? And what does it say? Jesus was fast asleep on a pillow, like he is out. Well, his servant goes in, Elisha is asleep, and the servant freaks out, wakes him up. Hey, we got to go. There are people surrounding us. we got all these people around us. What are we going to do, Elisha? What are we going to do? There are people everywhere. How are we going to handle this? And Elisha tells him something that is not what he expected. Elisha looks at his servant and says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now think about this for a minute. The servant has walked outside. He has seen hundreds if not thousands of chariots and horses and warriors ready to destroy them. He walks into the tent And he realizes it is him and Elisha, and that's it. And Elisha says, there are more of us than there are of him. And he looks at him and he goes, there are two of us. And a lot of them. Elisha then prays that God would open the eyes of his servant to see beyond the physical realm. And as the servant looks around, not only does he see the army of the king of Aram surrounding them, But surrounding that army is a heavenly army, a flaming army it talks about, on fire from the spiritual realm. And Elisha says, the ones that are for us are more than the ones that are against us. It may look like I'm surrounded, 
but I'm surrounded by you. And even when the circumstances of our life discourage us or make us think that we can't make it or that trouble is coming, we must realize that we have access to a power and to a force that is greater than anything in this world. And as we start this new series of messages called Surrounded, there are two goals that I really have for the whole series. And we're going to carry this series through the first couple of weeks of November. These are my two goals. My two goals are this. First of all, is to focus on the reality that spiritual warfare is real. That there is a realm that we do not see that impacts us on a daily basis. It is real. But not to stay there. I mean, we can look around and see that we live in a day of intense unrighteousness, unparalleled perversity, encroaching darkness. That our lives and our families and our homes and our churches and our marriages, our workplaces, are spiritual war zones. We can see that. We know that. But that's not the only focus I want to have. I do want us to make us aware of that because sometimes I think we forget that that's reality. But I also want us to understand how we can live victoriously in the midst of the warfare. How we can live victoriously in the midst of what's happening. That as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not defeated, but we have victory in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read for today just three verses. Verses 10, verse 11, and verse 12. We're going to focus on these three verses today and we're going to spend the next few weeks really looking at this entire chapter of Scripture. Here's what I want you to do, what I want you to think about as we do that. In fact, if you've got one of those bookmarks in your Bible, maybe your Bible comes with that, just stick it in Ephesians chapter 6 because we're going to be there for several weeks. As we walk through that, I want us to think about the reality of the spiritual war that's taking away around us. But then I also want us to think about the victory that comes through it. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, says, Finally. Now that finally is important. Because the word finally there comes from the fact that he has written the entire rest of the book. That that Ephesians chapter 1 through 6, 9 is the book that he has written about the truth of salvation. About how Christ saves us. About how we accept through faith. And then how we're to live in the midst of that. He's gotten very practical. These are the passages just before this about how a husband and wife are supposed to treat each other. How children and parents are supposed to treat each other. How workplaces are supposed to operate. So he gets through all of that and it seems like it's come to a good conclusion. But before he leaves, he says, finally. In ancient times, and even today, most people would hold the most important thing they wanted to say to the very end. They would wait till the end to speak the most important thing. And so when he says, finally, what he's saying to them is, this is what I want you to know more than anything else. And then he gives them these instructions, a general command. Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Now, if you've got a translation of the Bible, a version of the Bible that's different than the Christian Standard Bible that we use, perhaps yours says, finally, be strong in the Lord. But this translation is a better translation because in the original language, we're going to get deep for just a second, all right, to kind of explain this. In the original language, the word there is a specific type of word. It is a present imperative passive voice. All of God's people said, what? Right? Those are important. 
It's present, which means it's something not just that it happens in the present tense, but it has to happen all the time. So when he says be strengthened by the Lord, he's saying it has to be a continual process in your life. It is something that daily you're going to have to be strengthened by the Lord. Daily you're going to have to work at it. Secondly, it's a command. It's an imperative, which means that it is not a suggestion. It is not a choice. It is not something you can think about. This is a command of the Lord on our lives to be strengthened by him. And third, it is passive and voice, which means you're not doing the action, the Lord is doing the action. So what that means is, we live our lives every day allowing the Lord to strengthen us to live through the battles that are coming. We don't cower in the corner and wait. We don't run into the battle in our own strength. We are consistently strengthened. Now, it's not just strong to be strong. This isn't just lifting weights. We're strengthened by the Lord and His vast strength. The idea there is that we ought to be constantly renewed within by the things of God in our lives. So what does that look like? Well, y'all, Anne-Marie talked about this with the hand motions in the song, that we are strengthened by prayer, by going to the Lord in prayer, that that gives us the strength that the Lord provides, that we're strengthened through praising Him, through lifting high His name, that we're strengthened by reading His Word, that we're strengthened by getting together with God's people, and looking towards what God would have us to do. We're strengthened by doing the things God has told us to do to tap into what he wants us to know and how he wants us to live. And he tells us that when we're strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength, What's interesting there is that that word for vast strength is the same word used in Ephesians chapter 1 to describe the power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead. And he says in Ephesians chapter 1 and he says in Ephesians chapter 6 that the same power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead is available for you and for me every day of our lives to be strengthened by God to live how he wants us to live in the midst of a spiritual battle that is happening. Be strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength. That's the general command, the big picture. And then he gets specific about how we're strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength. Verse 11, he says this. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So the way that we're strengthened, the way that we do that is that we put on the full armor of God. Now, this is a different kind of verb than the previous one. I won't go into all the English grammar behind it. But the idea is this. We do the action here. We do the action. So we're the one putting on the full armor of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that we are finding access and power to what God has already given us that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks that God is providing for us. He is allowing us to have that access to that and we are to put it on and to live in it, to use it, to access it, and to make sure that we are living our daily lives in the power provided by God. Now, I don't think that what's happening here is that he's saying that every morning we have to get up and pray on a specific part of the armor. I think what it means here is that when we are saved by Jesus Christ, God provides the armor for us. We just need to realize it is there and use what he has given us. Clothing ourselves in what God has provided, God's provided armor, gives us the ability to stand firm against the schemes of the devil.
Now we're going to, in two weeks, we're going to talk extensively about the schemes of the devil and about how we approach our enemy. But today we're just going to kind of talk through the fact that God gives us the power to make it through that. The last verse. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. He says, the reason that I want you to be strengthened by the Lord and in his mighty strength, the reason you need to have the armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the things we see. It's not against other people. It's not against the circumstances of our life. Our struggle is a spiritual battle that behind the struggle, behind the circumstances, behind the people, are spiritual realities that are at play in the battle against our lives. Now here's the interesting thing about that word struggle, the word that's highlighted up there. That is a hopox legomenon. Amen? Y'all got that? How many of you know what a hypox legomenon is? We got a couple out there, right? Hypox legomenon. It sounds like something from like Harry Potter, doesn't it? Hypox legomenon. Um, I got off track there. All right, uh, here we go. It is a word that is only used once in the New Testament. In the original language, the word struggle is only used in the New Testament right here. It's the only time. So this is not one of the words I can say back in Ephesians 1 it says this, or back in Matthew it says this. It means right here, this is the only place. It's a word taken from their athletic world for their Roman, Greco-Roman wrestling style, where it was meant hand-to-hand combat. Wrestling. Not wrestling. Wrestling. Hand-to-hand combat. Like the Olympic combat. And what it means here is it is an intense struggle. It is a real struggle. In our modern terms, it would be something like MMA or on another level, like uh, the the offensive and defensive line in a football game, like hand-to-hand, close-quarter combat. The purpose of using this word here, I think, is because what he's saying is the struggle that we have the most real, the closest one we have, the one that impacts us the most, the one that is closest to us is a spiritual struggle. If you have a struggle with your boss, it's not really a struggle with your boss. There's a spiritual reality behind it. If you're having difficulty with your kids, if you're having difficulty with your spouse, yes, there are some personality issues that may need to be worked out. Yes, there are some things that need to be taken care of. But the ultimate issue, the ultimate problem is a spiritual issue. When there are problems in churches... When people distrust leadership or leadership distrust people or there's conflict with people that are in the congregation, like when any of that happens, there may be real issues that are at play, but at the behind it all, the attempt to get it to tear apart or disrupt what God is doing in the church is a spiritual issue. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against principalities and cosmic powers and darkness and spiritual forces. There is a spiritual reality around us. Be strengthened in the Lord. His mighty strength. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. Four things that I see in this passage that we're going to move through quickly that I want us to understand as we begin this series together. And the first thing is this. There is an invisible world that impacts us. 
a real world spiritually that impacts us. We were at the beach last week for a little bit. We got to come home a little early, right? On the way down there, we, uh, we left um, as soon as the kids got out of school on Friday. I mean, we, last Friday, kids got out of school. I guess a week ago, Friday, got out of school. We got in the car. Our kids got out of school at three. We were on the road by four. I mean, it was, it was like a record for us, all right? We got on the road. We got down the way. We, you know, got through Nashville traffic in eight and a half hours or something like that. And, uh, like, it took us, it took us a little long to get through Nashville traffic. On the way down, we picked up extras. Um, we have, uh, uh triplets that are uh, nieces and a nephew and so we picked up and so Susan and I were outnumbered significantly it was two adults and seven kids all between the ages of Ava and Eli we were on our way down there we drove and this is no lie we stopped in eight um, in Athens Alabama you know what Athens Alabama is just on the north part. we drove from Athens Alabama to Miramar Beach Florida without stopping with those seven kids all right the whole way we're nuts all right. So we get there. We're all ready to get there. We don't get to the beach, to the place we're staying with my um, father-in-law and his wife. We don't get there until 1230 to 1245 Saturday morning. We step out of the car, exhausted, legs tired, need a potty, all that stuff. Not something you normally hear in a sermon, but it's true. All right. Get out of the car, step out, and immediately something happens. Anybody know what immediately started happening? You know what happened, Ben? Start coughing. All of us. Almost in rhythm. You know why we were coughing? Red Tide. Doesn't that sound like a bad movie coming out? Like this October. Red Tide. Y'all know what Red Tide is? Anybody know what Red Tide? We don't have Red Tide around here, right? Red tide is an algae bloom out in the middle of the ocean. Kills lots of fish. Those fish wash up on the shore. It's beautiful, lovely, right? And it also gives off toxins. It kills the fish with the toxins. It gives toxins into the air. And you can't see it. You can smell the dead fish. You really can't smell it. But you can tell it's there. Because it is incessant coughing. Like sitting at the beach, everybody's coughing. Everybody around you, people are wrapped up like the apocalypse has come, the stuff around their mouths, they're walking out, all kinds of stuff happening there, right? Like just not to cough. Like literally the guy that goes out and puts the chairs on the beach, you know, the guy at our place put the chairs on the beach, is wearing one of those gas masks from like the 50s with the filtration systems on them. I mean, it's scary looking, right? We couldn't see it. I couldn't smell it. But it impacted me greatly. Anybody heard of the stomach virus? Oh, praise God for that, right? Praise God you don't have it right now. I hope you don't have it right now. If you do, get out, right? Right? If you're here, we love you. We love everybody here. We got the stomach virus. Bye, right? You didn't see it when it entered your body, did you? No. But you can tell the effects of it. Now, some people will say, well, that's different. That is a physical thing. Yes, it's different. I'm not saying they're exactly the same. But my point is, there are things around us all the time that we can't see, touch, taste, feel, experience that do things to us physically. It's not that far of a stretch to think about a supernatural world. In fact, I believe God has built into our lives a reality that we know there's something else out there besides the physical world. 
And even in a culture that claims we're too sophisticated to believe that, some of the most popular entertainment out there is made up of people talking about, interacting with, living out this spiritual existence. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and Charmed and The Sixth Sense and Exorcist and The Conjuring and American Horror Story and even the most popular book series of the last 20 years, Harry Potter, all talk about those kind of things. And obviously not all of those are true in the way they depict the supernatural world. In fact, most of them are pure fantasy. But the reality from which they draw is rock-solid biblical truth. There is an invisible spiritual world that impacts us every day. In the Old Testament, we talked about the story of Elisha, but Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 is trying to pray for something to happen. And it says that nothing can get to him. The angel says, I couldn't get there because another angel, another force was preventing me from getting there. When Jesus comes on the scene, there are demons that seem to appear from everywhere with the brightness of the light that he is shining. The spiritual world is brought into the light. Paul talks about the spiritual realm. And in the book of John, he gives us a picture of what's going to happen. Or in the book of Revelation, John gives us a picture of what's going to happen in the end. When the spiritual world takes on reality, there is an invisible world around us. Secondly, we are involved in a spiritual war. Whether you want to be or not, whether you choose to be or not, whether you desire to be or not, whether you want to opt out of that or not, the reality is you were born into a world already at war and you are a pawn in the midst of it. You are being involved in the war whether you like it or not or want to or not. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 tells us this. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. Not only is there a spiritual world out there that affects us, we are involved in a spiritual war. We are engaged in the battle that is happening between the forces of good, the forces of evil, between forces of our God and the forces of the enemy. And we have a real enemy. That's the third thing we see out of this passage. We have our enemy, he is real, and he is formidable. He is not to be played with. He is not to be cast aside as somebody that can't impact us. He and his forces are real and they are formidable. It talks about the schemes of the devil. That he is constantly scheming against us. He is constantly working against us. He is constantly thinking of ways to get into your life, into your marriage, into your family, into your workplace, into our church, and do things that would disrupt us from doing what God calls us to do. He'll use any method possible to ignore him and think that it's not really out there, to speak too much of him and think that it's all about him. He'll use technology that has come along for the good of people and he will use it to wreck young people's lives. He'll use it to wreck marriages. He'll use it to wreck families. Rick Dunham puts it this way. Satan and his forces have a plan to terrorize your soul. To render you impotent as a believer, to make you worthless to the cause of Christ, and to make your life one of misery and defeat. If you think that for some reason Satan's just going to leave you alone, you are mistaken. If you think he's just going to leave your family alone, you are mistaken. 
Jesus said it this way. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at a biblical theology of our enemy. So I don't want to spend too much time here, but I want us to understand he is real and he is formidable. And here's the last point and then we're done. We fight from, from victory, not for it. We're not trying to win this thing. It's already been won. It was won at the cross and the resurrection. So this is not something where we don't know the outcome, where we're trying to figure it out as we go, and we hope we got on the right side of history. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we win. Some of you notice I'm wearing a tie today, mainly because I don't think I've worn a tie in this service for about eight years. Maybe it hasn't been that long. But it's a specific tie, right? I bring this tie out on specific occasions, or equations when I do math. Some, sometimes I just do math in the tie. That's, that is the nerdiest thing I've ever said. All right. I don't. I don't. All right. But I bring this out on special occasions when Tennessee wins an important football game. I had to pull it out of storage and mothballs because it's been a long time. But they won an important football game yesterday. I know Auburn's not great, but they won a road SEC game against the Western, Western Division for the first time in eight years. That's a big win. All right. Now, I don't know if any of you watched the game. Some of you don't care about the game. I understand that. Do you know when I was sure Tennessee would win that game? 30 minutes after the game was over. Because as a Tennessee fan, we feel like they could go back and fix it somehow. That they, oh, we, we messed up here, all right? We've had too many things happen with 13 men on the field and uh, false start penalties. And we've just had too much happen. Like somebody wrote, Tennessee was up by two scores at the start of the fourth quarter. Somebody said, if you're not a Tennessee fan, you think this game is probably over. If you are a Tennessee fan, you have no idea what's going to take place in the fourth quarter. Like you worry the whole time. Like, is it going to happen? I stood up for the last 10 minutes of that game. Pacing in front of the, pacing in front of the TV, walking around the TV. Is this going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think there's any way it can happen. It's been just close before. We can't happen. They're going to throw a Hail Mary at four seconds left. It just can't happen. Like, I'm, I'm worried, right, the whole time. I found out, by the way, that my, I was streaming it, because we don't have cable. I was streaming it online. As I'm streaming it online, I realize that Twitter is about 30 seconds ahead, and so I'm trying to find out what the play is before I actually see it, all right? Because I want to see if they win. And it was over. I rejoiced because it was over. When it comes to our spiritual battle, it's not like a game we don't know how it's going to end. We know how it ends. We win. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we win. We have the victory. We have the power. It's over. We're just in the last days of a dying resistance. Which gives us the confidence to live in the strength that God provides to put on the full armor of God and stand against the schemes of the devil. In the book of Revelation, John writes about the fact that we're going to win. One of my favorite stories about the book of Revelation actually is not found in Revelation. It comes from the history after Revelation. But most of you know the book of Revelation is written by John. Where was John when he wrote Revelation? Anybody know? 
He was on the island of Patmos, right? He had been banished to the island of Patmos. He was in prison, if you will, on the island of Patmos. But, and I've told you this before, I think even a couple of weeks ago. The reason he was on Patmos was not because just they were trying to get him away. They tried to kill him, literally. They put him in boiling oil. And he didn't die. So they said, we can't kill him, we're going to banish him to Patmos. And while he's at Patmos, the people that he has been ministering to in Asia are freaked out because their leader is gone. And by all accounts, he's the last of the apostles. And they're worried that everything they heard about Jesus wasn't true. And so part of the reason Revelation is written, yes, there's prophecy in there. Yes, there are things we can look at for what's going to happen when the end times come. But primarily is written to a group of people that are worried that they're not going to make it, that they're going to die, and they were wrong. And he writes to them and says... Basically, throughout the whole book of Revelation, we see this. We win. Take heart. Take comfort. We win. There's a lot of things in Revelation we'll never understand this side of heaven because it was written about a particular political climate to people that were there in that day. But one thing that I know from the history books is not only is John right and that we win in the end, he was more confident that he would win over the emperor who was trying to kill him or keep him on that island. And the story is told in church history that John got off the island, that that emperor died, was overthrown, and that he came back to the city where he had been ministering to on the boat. And as he came back on the boat, he stood on the front of the boat and the masses of his church awaited him at the shore. And I don't have a clue what John said there, but I'd like to think he'd said, I told you so. I told you we win. I don't know exactly, other than well done, good and faithful servant, what will be said to us when we get to the other side. But I am confident in this, that when we get to the other side, we're going to look back on our lives and see the spiritual struggles that we went through and realize that God was there strengthening us to make it through the whole way. And we're going to be more appreciative than ever that we win. So two questions before we go today. First of all is this. How often in your life do you look at the circumstances or the people around you and fail to see the spiritual things happening behind the scenes? You get mad at somebody and it's all their fault and it's all them and it's if they would just shape up instead of asking the question, what is happening spiritually? And the second question is this. What's happening in your life right now? What are you trying to fix? What are you trying to get through? What are you trying to work through that you are trying every imaginable physical and mental solution and it just doesn't work? That perhaps you need to address it as a spiritual issue. Through prayer, through study of God's word, through seeking him completely. Because our battle is not against flesh and blood but against principalities, spirits, powers. What do you need to turn over to the Lord and be strengthened by his mighty strength, his vast strength, to overcome in your life? Let's pray together.